You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Economics is a wonderful science, but it is not yet at a point where it can even tell you if we're in a recession now. So the question then is for ordinary people in a world like this, how do you possibly function? I think that the answer is you take the long view, you realize that you cannot forecast anything short term and that none of these so-called experts can either. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, can tailor investment solutions for the wealth you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today for a special markets and economy edition of Her Money. We have seen markets worldwide tumbling and rebounding and tumbling again the past few weeks as investors dumped government bonds, oil prices slipped, cryptocurrencies crashed. The S&P 500, which has fallen 10 out of the last 11 weeks, has declined more than 21% since January, and the Fed in a move to try to fight inflation without tipping the economy into a recession, raised interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point or 75 basis points last week, which was the largest rate hike we've seen in 28 years. And this was aimed directly at taming the runaway growth in the prices of, well, just about everything that Americans are facing these days. And of course, Many economists are now saying, here comes a recession. Many are predicting that we'll be in a recession by 2024. Some say it'll come sooner. Others believe we may already be in it right now. So what does all this mean other than take a breath? What can we actually do? I want to introduce our guest to you. I'm very excited that he's here because I suspect that you have read his work many, many times. I know I have. Jeff Summer writes the strategies column for the New York Times. It's all about the markets, finance, the economy. Our whole team at Hermione, as we have tried to sort through this madness, has been really absorbed in his work lately. And We'll link to Jeff's author page in the show notes, but suffice it to say, his thoughts on inflation and recessions and bear markets and more are so well explained that you should absolutely put his work on your essential reading list. But there is a reason why Jeff is so good. This is the 12th bear market he's been through as a human being, the 7th that he's been through as a journalist. So this is not his first rodeo, and he's got a lot to tell us about where we are and where we might be headed. Jeff, we're so grateful to you for spending some time with us this week to parse through this. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to invite me. I want to start with a big overarching question. What is happening right now? (laughs) I I wish I knew, I'd say. You know, one of the things that I try to do, if you read what I've been writing, is I'm an agnostic and I do not claim to have any great prescience. You know, if I could forecast the world 
I wouldn't be a journalist, you know, I'd be some kind of magician. So I go, you know, I kind of just look backward, you know, mm-hmm. and then do probabilities and the like. In the most basic sense, there's the narrative of the Fed and of inflation. You know, if there were nothing else happening and all we had was that, it would be complicated enough. That being the Fed lowered interest rates to almost zero level. It began buying up, you know, bonds and other securities, all of which were designed to stimulate the economy and to entice people into risky assets. Risky, I would say, stocks. None of the other stuff that I know has been mentioned sometime earlier on the show. I'm not one for experimenting much in things like crypto, NFTs, or any of that. I would not recommend that. I want to be clear about that. But I'm talking about risky assets like stocks. Mm -hmm. The Fed had encouraged everyone to get into all of that. And now inflation is out of control. Now it's discouraging the world from doing that. But that's just a very simple narrative. And as we know, there's a lot else going on, you know. Right. We've got a war that perhaps we did not see coming. We've got weird political times. There's an awful lot going on. And I think what the Fed did during the initial months of the pandemic, trying to support the economy, trying to stimulate the economy, there's always this risk of doing too much or not backing off of it soon enough. And I think for those of us who are trying to manage our own personal economies, right, we default to a position of just wanting to do something, right? We want control over our money. We want control over our futures. We want control over our own financial lives. So if we're nervous, what do we do at this point? Step back and do nothing. But that only makes sense if you're already pretty well positioned, you know, if you've thought things through. I did a piece within the last month pointing out both how frequently bear markets occur. I've had to even explain to some of my colleagues at the Times who are much younger than I am and who view bear markets as they view them as incredibly rare events because they had never experienced them. And I had to, I pointed out, they happen rather frequently. The same thing is true for recessions. You mentioned recession. We may or may not be in a recession, but I think that that word kind of needs to be detoxified. What do you mean? You know, if I live in New York, my wife actually is from Buffalo, you know, and has a lot of fun whenever the snow comes and everyone here freaks out, you know, and in Buffalo, they say it's no big deal, you know, and it isn't. The kind of snow we get is usually nothing compared to what they get up there. And so they accept that it's part of life. You know, recessions are part of life. I think investors, and by investors, I mean people who are putting their money into assets for the long term. And by the long term, I mean at least a decade and probably longer, really, you know, 20, 30, 40. I'm old enough now to have been at this for, you know, 40 to 50 years already, right? So what I'm saying essentially is that ideally, I think you want to assume that a recession could be coming at any moment. The piece that I just did showed, in fact, I went back to the National Bureau of Economic Research site. That's the quasi-official body that defines when we are in a recession. And it usually does that way after we're in a recession. It, it can't do it in real time to start with. Can you explain that? Just take a pause there. and Because I know people are hearing 
economists and other experts saying right now, well, we may actually be in a recession already. We just don't know it. Why does it work that way? It's because they define recession in a careful way. It involves you know, several factors. It means a decline in economic activity that is protracted, that is pervasive, that extends throughout the economy. And that is profound, that is fairly deep, you know, and it's not a simple matter that even the statistics that we report on, you know, in the New York Times, like GDP, the unemployment rate, those are constantly revised by the government. All of this is done very carefully and legitimately. Let me be clear about that. But in real time, they just don't know. And what I found when I looked at it is that, again, the the statistics are that we have been in recession since World War II, 14% of the time. The recessions usually last around 10 months. The expansions last a little bit over 60 months. I did some of the math, and it shows you that if we had published on the front page of the New York Times every day since World War II that the United States will be in a recession within two years, if we did that every single day, we would have been right 46% of the time, almost half of the time. That's what the math, the probability shows. What I'm saying to you is that everything you're hearing from economists, they just don't know. They can't do it. There have been very wonderful pieces done by economists that I respect. They're fascinating. And when they go back and then dissect, why is it, for example, a guy who was the head of research at the New York Federal Reserve wrote a piece around 2008, 2009, 2010, that period. Why is it that we could not predict, you know, the great financial crisis and that great recession? Because we didn't. And he laid it all out. Economics is a wonderful science, but it is not yet at a point where it can even tell you if we're in a recession now. So what I think now, if the question then is for ordinary people in a world like this, how do you possibly function? I think that the answer is you take the long view you realize that you cannot forecast anything short term and that none of these so-called experts can either. And then you make investing plans that are predicated on the history that is actually known. And you hope that to some limited degree, history does repeat itself. What do I mean by that? I mean that the economy in the United States and in the world has grown over time. You know, it periodically, I think you can also assume that it will glitch with great regularity for reasons that we can discuss. Why does that happen? You know, there are all kinds of theories. But it grows over the long time. And then you ask yourself, what does that have to do with the stock market? Well, why would stocks provide any reasonable return over the long term? I wrote a a piece about that, uh, being the Times in print on Sunday. And the answer, you know, which a young economics student, Lucy, in Indianapolis, gave me the answer, which is just that when you invest in the stock market, you're investing in companies that are profiting from that long-term economic growth, and you are receiving some of that return in stocks. Over the short term, as we know, people engage in kind of herd behavior, irrational exuberance, irrational depression You know that drives down stocks. The, the stock prices do not, over the short term, correspond with profits, but over a period of 20 years, they do roughly, they do parallel that. So my answer basically is that if you can't handle the declines in the stock market, you shouldn't be in the stock market. Which is an interesting thing to say right now, right? Because we're dealing with 
inflation that we haven't seen in 40 years, right? We've got a 41-year high level of inflation. There are so many people alive right now who've never seen this before. Right, yes. I'm 57 years old. I sort of remember this, right? I, have a I remember. Decade on you, Gene. <laughs> so I sort of remember. I mean, I remember taking road trips with my parents in the 80s when gas was really expensive. I remember my parents buying a house. We moved frequently when I was a child, and I remember them buying a house with a double-digit mortgage. But there are a lot of people who have never experienced this inflation, who have not experienced an environment where interest rates are rising, which puts a damper on corporate profits. And, you know, maybe we can understand that stocks go up and stocks go down, but you add on these other factors and it makes us even more nervous and it makes us wonder, is history going to be different this time around? Sure. And it's a good question. And and history is always different. You know, that's the beauty of being alive. We don't really know, you know, where things are going. And, And by the way, I would urge anyone be skeptical about everything I say and about everything everyone says. You know, you've got to think for yourself. You're right, Gene. It is a very worrisome time. And I don't mean to be glib about this. I may sound like I may have gotten carried away. I do think this is very rough for a lot of people, you know, and especially if you didn't see this coming. So one thing, for example, there's a question, should people sell stocks in a declining market? The standard answer is don't, but I don't think that's totally right. And I've said this before in previous crises that I think it's critical to kind of get things right for yourself. You know, the first most important thing is to be able to pay the bills, you know, and then the second most important thing is to have a little money put aside so you will be able to pay the bills when something bad happens. And bad things happen. You know, they're going to happen. The terrible thing about a recession, you know, is that it affects people who have never been able to amass enough money to invest in stocks at all. You know, it affects people who really are depending on their paychecks. So it's rough. So you have to do all of that. If you have money in the market, and you're really in trouble, then get out of it. But in a more positive note, if I might, if that's not your situation, if you can kind of take some deep breaths and like figure this out. So there's that phrase that, you know, kind of an ugly phrase, but, you know, asset allocation, which just means, you know, (laughs) it's stocks and bonds. And right now, you know, short-term investments, the only little glimmer of good news right now is that, you know, money market fund yields are rising really rapidly right now, you know, so that you're getting a little bit of money for what you might consider cash, you know, money market funds. The bonds have not been great. And I believe you've probably discussed this whole bit, you know, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? That meme is out there. It's not dead. I'm thinking of writing a piece on this. I haven't written this lately. You know, I've written about this many times though in the past. Vanguard just did some new research on this. Essentially, the theory has been that when the stock market tanks and when you go into a recession, that bonds will help your investments in a few ways. They still are helping your investments in some ways. That is that if you buy a high quality bond, like a government bond, that bond is holding its value if you hold it to maturity. So if you put $1,000 into that treasury 
you're going to get $1,000 back. And I've done that kind of thing myself because I'm not you know, 20 years old. I might need that money. I have money in bonds. But they were also supposed to increase in value as the stock market decreased in value. And that hasn't happened this year. And the reason it hasn't happened is quite simple. And I know that it's shocking to people if they hadn't thought this through, but we've been saying for years that sooner or later, you know, interest rates are going to rise. Right. And that we've been saying for years that the bond market has been in a long running bull market. It was in a essentially a bull market. And it doesn't get discussed that way very often, but bonds were in a bull market for about 40 years. And the reason, again, was that interest rates declined and, you know, prices and interest rates for bonds move in opposite directions. It's just simple math. That's going to keep happening until the interest rates peak. That is until the Federal Reserve, going back to where we started, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates high enough that it has concluded that either inflation is under control and or we're heading into a recession. The soft landing notion is the Fed raises rates, things slow down a bit, inflation goes down a bit, and then the Fed nimbly reverses itself and lowers <laughs> rates. You know, The bond part will start looking a lot better. That 60-40 portfolio will look a lot better. You know, So I think you should hold bonds if you're- Yeah, ready. I agree with you. And so on the weekends, I host a, a radio show called Everyday Wealth. I host it with Soledad O'Brien. We have a lot of fun. It, it airs nationally, but we just had a whole discussion about the 60-40 portfolio and whether it's dead. And I agree with you. I think holding bonds, even though they're not in favor right now, is an important protection against overall risk. We need some sort of a balance. Especially if you're older, I think, where you're, you know, yeah. you're closer, right? If you're 20 years old, 18 years old, you might not need bonds. I yeah, exactly. And we'll also, in our show notes, link to the column that you wrote about the difference between being a younger investor and an older investor, particularly in this market. I thought it was very, very helpful. But this idea of a soft landing, this idea that the Fed can actually just land the plane, you're not even going to feel the bumps, they very rarely manage to do that, right? And in this scenario, the right. prognosticators, right, whether it's Citi or Goldman Sachs or individual analysts are every day I read the headlines and I see the odds on the chance of a recession as made by one firm or another heading up. Right. You know, as I was saying, I would, with all due respect, my friends and you know, fellow classmates in some cases who work for these firms, I wouldn't pay very much attention to any of those odds. I'd ask them compared to what? As I was just telling a little while ago, if you know nothing ever, and you say that the United States is going to go in a recession within two years, you're going to be right 46% of the time, or you would have been since yeah. World War II. So they have no clue, I would say. <laughs> really. You know, I worked for a Wall Street firm for a little while. Yeah. And my boss, who was a, a research analyst, said, you actually have to be right 51% of the time to earn your salary. Nice. That's yes. pretty good. I yeah, like that. Right? Yeah. Well, that's so. okay. You know, it doesn't mean these are brilliant people, well educated. It's just these numbers are. That said, okay, I, I'm quibbling about, you know, that aspect of it. But I mean, I think you can go with your gut if you're an educated person, more or less, and or you've made yourself into an educated person. You go with your gut. Is the economy facing more problems now than it did at a better period? And of course it is. 
You alluded to the, you know, the, the question of the soft landing. Jerome Powell, in testimony this week, actually, is acknowledging that it will be very challenging to have a soft landing. You know, the Fed's tools, its toolkit is very, very limited and very crude, really, right? It, it's doing its best. It's experimenting, I think. But essentially, you know, just by raising interest rates, it affects the entire economy. It doesn't just very neatly and surgically affect inflation. It's just not possible. The other thing that I would say, though, that these comments that are coming out of Wall Street and from, you know, these esteemed economists that seem very negative and the, the negative, the gloom, a lot of that, I think, is actually intended by the Fed. They engage in what they call forward guidance. They want to tighten monetary conditions. That is one of their tools, actually. It's not as well understood, but they are deliberately freaking the world out right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, mortgage rates, right, have risen much more than you would have predicted if you used a, a basic macroeconomic model, you know, where the only input is the Fed funds rate. The Fed funds rate has gone up, you know, a small amount. Mortgage rates have gone up a lot. Why right. have they gone up so much? It's not because of a direct mathematical connection. It's because everyone is expecting changes in the broader economy. When the mortgage rate rises, that will have the effect of slowing down the economy, that probably helps the Fed tighten. So it's very complicated. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to measure this with any precision, you know, as it's happening, right? Right. And one of the reasons, too, I mean, we talk about the fact that the market is not the economy, right? And that it's yes. really important to distinguish between the two. But if you look at the timing of recessions versus bear markets, the markets have let us out of recession. The market is going to rebound, or at least historically, the market has typically rebounded. And I looked back at the last three recessions before it was clear that we were out of recession. And just like we aren't going to know that we're in a recession until we've been in one for a while, we're not going to know that we're out of one until we've been out of it for a little while. And so as you are thinking about your investments, and I want to talk specifically in a second about our listeners who are just getting started with their investments. But as you're thinking about your investments, if you think you're going to be able to time this and get it just right and be out of the market and then get back into the market just before things start to go up, you're wrong. Exactly. I, I agree with you completely. Yeah. I think that's it's just a mistaken approach. And it's a, an approach that I tried, by the way. You know, I've made every mistake. Well, you know? me too. I mean, I think that's what makes us good journalists, right? We've made enough mistakes that we sort of know who the smart people are to talk to and not to listen to ourselves. As long as we recognize that we've messed up. The Times has a very good, annoying, but strict policy on corrections. We have to fess up yeah. when we've messed up. So, you know, I, I just did a thing on, you know, if you're starting out, you know, what do you do, right? Well, I want to get to that in just a second. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that if you are a member of the Her Money audience, our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you are building, the wealth that you're growing and you're protecting. And their investment management approach is based on Nobel Prize winning research and their planners don't sell products to earn commissions, period. So no matter 
where you're going next, it's a good idea to see how they can help you get there. I'm talking with Jeff Summer. He is the strategies columnist for the New York Times. So let's talk about our younger listeners. Let's talk about people who are not investing. How do you get started even in a bear market? Well, thank you for asking that question. I think that the best approach is to keep it really simple and to keep it really cheap. I think that you actually don't need much advice if you start out. You can do this pretty much as a do-it-yourselfer, but only if you're the kind of person who is willing to do some research, you know, and you're careful. I essentially think that the greatest lessons I learned as a reporter covering these things clearly came from Jack Bogle, who I was lucky enough to, you know, to get to know and speak with fairly often. And I, I can't believe that I can't call him now. You know, he died, you know, several years ago, but he was the founder of Vanguard and the creator of the first commercially available low cost index fund, you know, and for people who are starting out, I mean, I didn't know what an index fund was. And when I was young, they didn't exist. They were an idea. Uh, It was an idea that um, Gene, when we were pretty young, you know, the economist Paul Samuelson, who, you know, was, I think he was the first Nobel laureate in economics. He wrote the textbook. He wrote my textbook. He wrote my Econ 1A textbook. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. He was a Penn professor. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, he was a a formidable guy. And he wrote a column in Newsweek. And he wrote one saying that the only people who are reliably making money on the stock market are the people who are selling stocks to investors. But investors themselves, you know, are losing money in fees and in stock picking. They're taking advice from people, buy this stock, buy that stock. Instead, he said, would someone please create a fund that would track the whole market? and do it cheaply. Because economics has found, as I was saying earlier, that as long as the economy keeps rising, keeps growing, and over the long run, I think that's a good bet. I think if that doesn't happen, you know, we're in a whole different universe, by the way, you know, which we could discuss. That's, we're in dystopia then. But assuming the economy keeps rising and you have a reasonable governmental system, which also is something that will only happen if you know people are active, et cetera. It's not, a, as we know, it's not a given thing at this moment. But I, again, I'm assuming all that's the case. As long as that keeps happening and you invest in the whole market and you do it cheaply, over the long run, you'll prosper. So index funds let you do that. Bogle created an S&P 500 index fund. There are now index funds that are run by many of the big companies. They're very cheap, by which I mean you look for the expense ratio, that's what they call it, and you want it to be as close to zero as possible. You want as broad of a fund as possible because, again, that whole notion, you want to capture the whole economy. You don't know, you know, if someone says this stock is going to rise, someone says that stock's going to rise. They really don't know why do you want to take that risk. So you invest in the entire stock market and you do it for the long run and you try to do it regularly. And then as you get a bit older, you start adding bonds. You do the same thing with bonds. You track the entire bond market. You don't try to get fancy. You know, and then the only issue then is that asset allocation, more bonds, more stock, what makes sense for you. Keep it as simple as that. That's all you're going to need, I'd say. So I was not as fortunate to talk with Jack Bogle as often as it sounds like you talked with him. But I did talk with him some. And one of the times I talked with him, 
we were talking about rebalancing, this whole idea of bringing your portfolio back into line with your asset allocation, as we were talking about before, the amount of money that you want to have in stocks and bonds rather than the amount that you do have because the markets have moved and kind of gotten your mix out of whack. And Jack Bogle said, I never rebalance. And I was like, what? After saying you should rebalance once a year, he was like, you know, but I never rebalance. And there's been some research on the fact that a lot of people think that they're going to rebalance and they never rebalance. And when you get a big shift in the markets, right, when you get a 2008 and the markets really head down, if you are overweighted in stocks, if you've got more money than you think you should have, it, you can get more hurt than you would have otherwise, which is a very long-winded way of asking you, so what do you think of for these people? Because I agree with you. I think we can go cheap. We can go easy. We can control the things we can control, which are the fees in many cases and the amount that you save. And go very, very simple until you have one of these incidents when not rebalancing may have gotten you in some trouble. So I'm asking, what do you think of those solutions like a robo-advisor or a target date fund that actually will do that for you as an alternative to I'm just going to do in my 20s, let me just put it all in an index fund or two, and I'll move a little into bonds along the way. I agree with you. Uh, first of all, about you know, Jack Bogle, you know, he, yeah, he defied his own teachings. But of course, he was worth a lot of money. Well, yeah. If you're incredibly wealthy, you yeah. don't have to invest. Right. And, you know, let me be fair. He wasn't as incredibly wealthy as he would have been if he'd set up Vanguard differently. You know, he didn't profit, you know, as an owner. He wasn't an owner. But he was worth somewhere, you know, scores of millions. And he was interested in his legacy. And uh, he was way past, you know, needing that money for himself. So he really thought he was going to be, you know, bequest. The money was going to go on for decades. And if you're going to, if you don't need to touch it for decades, don't rebalance, keep it in the stock market. But for mere mortals, for news people who barely get by, et cetera. Sure. I have money in you know a 401k account at the Times. It's in a target date fund. Most of it is in a target date fund. It's in two target date funds because I can never, you know, figure out how long I'm gonna, you know, stick with this. And I keep extending it, you know, further. You know, so I have some money now in a 2030 fund. But at any rate, they rebalance automatically. I've also got some money in an IRA that's in a so-called balanced fund, and it rebalances automatically. I think that that is a great thing to do, actually. And then when you get into robo-advisors, I don't look at the fees. A Vanguard, which runs the Times 401k, keeps and uh, sending me these, these missives, you know, asking if I'd like to get advice from them. And they would charge me 0.25% on my assets to do what that target date fund already does. And of course, what I know how to do myself. And, you know, 0.25% on, um, I've been working for, you know, more than 40 years. So I've put aside some money. It's a substantial amount every year. And why? And all the others, they're charging you that. Ask yourself, what are they really doing for me? Do I need it? You can get the rebalancing through a fund that charges 
you know, less than 0.15%, frankly. I get it. Look, I think you made two important points in your last paragraph, which is one (laughs) is you know how to do it yourself. And two, you actually do it yourself, right? And I think, you know, people who need the help of a robo-advisor, a financial advisor, it's either a matter of not knowing what to do or not doing it for whatever reason. Maybe you don't have the time. Maybe you just don't do it. And and in that case, you absolutely have to get some help. You're totally right. But then I would say you want to be very careful. And uh, one word first, fiduciary. A hundred percent. Is that person a fiduciary? What does that mean? That means that they are required by law to worry about you first and not to siphon off money for themselves, right? That's number one. 100%. The other thing is cost. Look very closely at that. And even outfits that are generally, you know, pretty good, play games. If it's a commercial operation that needs profit, it will find a way to make profit. So you're either an investor or you're providing profit for somebody else. Be careful. Point taken. Jeff, we're going to wrap this up because this has been a a fantastic, but I think really dense conversation. And I want to make sure in a good way, right? I mean, I think we have talked about so many of the things that are on people's minds right now. As we leave it for them, what are your sort of marching orders at this point? Is this a turn off the television moment? Is this a just keep on keeping on putting money into your 401k? What's the best way to go forward from today? Well, I, I'm glad you, you reminded me of that. You know, the turn off the television moment. Yeah, the, the advice of Richard Thaler, you know, who is a very funny guy, as well as being a you know, Nobel laureate, you know, a founder of behavior economics. His advice for investing is turn off the TV. But that, of course, is assuming that you've set yourself up roughly in the way we've described, right? And if you have, I mean, I look at this stuff every second because I do it, it's my work, you know, and it keeps bread on the table for me. <laughs> but, you know, if you don't have to, I would be calm, be happy, enjoy the summer. Better times will come. It will work out if you're able to hang in over the long term and do some of the things we've discussed. It always seems to do that. Jeff, thank you so much for doing this today, for spending a little bit of your day with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we head into our mailbag and bring along Catherine Tuggle, let me just remind everybody that her money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union providing a wide array of financial products and services for its members. And if you're currently out exploring the auto market, you should know BCU offers financing and refinancing options. Yes, you can refi your car loan. And if you have a particularly expensive rate, you should look into refinancing your car loan. It also has an exclusive auto buying service that can help save you time and money. And you can learn more at bcu.org. As we turn to our mailbag, Catherine Tuggle from Her Money joins me. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I'm so glad we did this show. I think Jeff really answered so many of the questions that you and I have been having and that I know that our listeners have been having. So thanks for this. 
Yeah, thank you for getting him on. You know I'm such a fan. For those people who read our, our weekly newsletter, our newsletter that comes out on Tuesday, it's a digest, basically, of what's happening in the world of your money. It's for people who maybe don't have time to read all the financial news. Catherine and I read it, and we all week long think about what's really important for you to know. What are the things that you actually need to pay attention to because they're either going to save you money or make you money or make you nervous. And we put them into this newsletter that we send out every Tuesday. And it is one of those places that very frequently I find myself quoting Jeff, right? Because he has that accurate lens on the world that I trust, right? He's not political. He's not overly complicated or confusing. And he's been through enough up and down markets that he manages to really make sense. So I was just thrilled to see him on the lineup. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And whenever I was chatting with him, asking him to come on, and he said he'd been through 12 bear markets, I said, oh, that's why. That's why everything you write makes complete sense because you have seen this over and over again and we can learn so much from you. Yeah, that's why. That's why he was the person for the moment. Just to finish up on that newsletter thread, if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, the easiest way to get subscribed is just to go to hermoney.com and click on the subscribe button. It'll take literally a nanosecond. So join us there if you're not getting that newsletter. Yeah, definitely. You ready to take a question? I am. Our question today is from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. You've helped me navigate some big changes in the past few years. My husband and I were teachers, but with the pandemic and the political climate, we just couldn't do it anymore. I remember quite clearly huddling with my students in the dark during a lockdown and thinking I would take a bullet for these students. I don't want to, but I will. We didn't know it at the time, but the active shooter was nearby and not actually on campus. Oh my God. I mean, I just have goosebumps. My parents, as I've talked about before, my parents were teachers and I just can't imagine. No teacher goes into this line of work thinking that they are going to be the first line of defense. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that that is something that you have to think about is horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, sorry to digress. I got chills. Yeah. She goes on. She says, we left teaching last year. My husband found work in the service sector where he now makes about $30,000 a year. And I have a job in tech, and I'm making around $120,000 per year. Oh, my gosh. She any- just doubled her teacher salary, <laughs> didn't she? Yeah. yeah, maybe more than that. I mean, certainly, I think in Alabama, I think the starting teacher salaries are like 40000 So Wow. Yeah. She says, we do not have any debt. In the past year, our investments, which are professionally managed, have really tanked. And inflation has me worried. Here's my question. My husband and I both have a modest pension from the school where we used to work. It starts at 65 and is fixed benefit. There is no cost of living increase. We can take it early, but there's a 6% per year deduction if we do. My husband's 62 and I'm 60, so he would get 82% of his benefit if he starts it now. I would get 70% of mine. We don't need the money to live on as long as I stay employed. 
looking at inflation, it seems like our benefit is getting significantly eroded. But if we took it early, I don't know where we'd invest it. Should either one of us or both of us take our pension early? If yes, where should we invest it? Thank you so much. This is a really good question. And even though the 6% reduction for taking it early is not the same as the 8% deduction for taking Social Security early, that's kind of how I am thinking about this. I probably would not take it early. And I, although you could invest it in a diversified portfolio of stocks or a 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds, and over time, historically, you would likely beat that 6% return, there's no guarantee. And there is a guarantee for leaving the money to grow until you're 65. And so I would just suggest that you and your husband leave the money in the pension to grow until it's of full value. The other thing that makes it just a little difficult to answer the question is that I'm not sure how the rest of your investments are allocated. And my guess is particularly you are putting a nice chunk of money every year into the retirement plan at your new job. I would just make sure that those investments are allocated a little bit more aggressively. You can think of this pension as part of the fixed income component of your portfolio because it's steady, because it's earning a guaranteed return. And because of that, you can overweight your other investments toward taking a little more risk than you would have otherwise. The other thing that I would suggest for you guys at this point in your life and as you're considering how long you're going to stay in these jobs, when you are going to not just take the pension, but actually take Social Security, all of those decisions, and when you're going to retire and how you're going to retire. I think now would be a really, really good time for you to sit down with a financial advisor and just create a roadmap, actually make a retirement plan. You've probably heard us on this show talking about the free retirement review that you can get from our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. That's just one place to start. You could certainly reach out to them, or if you go to hermoney.com and click on the Find an Advisor button, we'll connect you. But the pension in and of itself, I would just leave it and allow it to grow. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because basically she would lose more by taking the pension early than she would lose due to inflation is what it comes down to, no? Well, actually, no. So inflation right now, because it's running at nine-ish percent, is actually running hotter than the gain, the 6% gain she is getting by leaving the money in the pension to grow. So that's, I think, why she asked the question. She says, I'm losing money to inflation because my benefit is not keeping pace with inflation. 
should I try to make it up by taking the money out of the pension and investing it in something that could potentially grow faster? And my point is, the government's working on bringing inflation down. Hopefully, we're not going to be running at these levels for much longer, even if it takes a little bit of time, a few years, to bring us back down to the 2%, 3% level that the government likes to see us at. So I'd take the sure thing here and look to make gains against inflation with the other portion of my investments. Makes perfect sense. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, let's talk travel rewards credit cards. Over the past two years, travel has constantly changed. After keeping travel plans on the back burner for so long, we're starting to see it pick up again thankfully, but we're also starting to deal with delays, pretty rough delays. And along with all of that, predictably comes a rise in advertisements and offers for travel rewards, credit cards. And maybe you were one of those people who decided to cancel your travel cards in 2020 as COVID began to upend the world, or maybe you've never had one of these cards before. Either way, it's a good time to review whether you want to renew the cards you have or apply for a new one. But first, you'll want to consider whether the travel rewards that you're being offered are actually worth it, and even whether the card that you choose could help pay for those skyrocketing gas prices. So the first thing to ask yourself is whether you plan to travel often. If you fly frequently, as I do, or you go overseas once a year or more, travel rewards credit cards can come in really handy. And if you're loyal to a specific airline or hotel brand, a co-branded card will give you perks like free checked bags, maybe even room upgrades. The next thing to look at annual fees. Some travel cards have the potential for high annual fees. The flip side on that is that many of these high fee cards offer some excellent but sometimes complicated rewards. For example, the Chase Sapphire Reserve card commands a very steep annual fee, $550, but It provides up to $300 in statement credits when you spend that much or more on travel. And Delta's credit cards through American Express reward you with a free checked bag on your flight, but the annual fee could be anywhere from $99 to $550. Whether or not it's worth it, well, That depends on how often you travel and how many of the card's benefits are actually relevant to you. So read the fine print. The truth is, if you're not quite sure how much you'll travel, it's probably more beneficial to look at a cash back card versus one that is focused exclusively on travel rewards. Plus, getting some extra cash back as you pay higher prices at the pump, that can help ease the burden of rising fuel costs. So ask yourself what you really need and how often you're realistically going to be heading off into the friendly skies. Always do your research and make sure the rewards you're getting are 
will actually be used. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jeff Summer for this great discussion on what's really going on in the markets and with our economy. I loved all his thoughts on what we need to do with our investments and how we can stay calm. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to your show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.